All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about the Biden interview. I believe it was with CNN's Farid Zakaria. And the focus of the interview, well, where a lot of people were focused and where I was focused as well was, of course, to the announcement of the cluster munitions. But as they were talking about the cluster munitions, Biden made an incredible revelation that we've discussed on our uh, channels, our separate channels, but much of the media is not talking about this. Uh, Brian uh, Berletic at the New Atlas, he did talk about this, and I'm sure some other independent uh, journalists and YouTube channels have covered this as well, but the mainstream media, they didn't, they didn't pick up of the, on this, or they don't want to pick up on this. What is the incredible revelation that Biden made? Well, the incredible revelation is that the United States is is out of is out of shells. It's out of ammo. It cannot supply ammo any longer. One hundred and fifty five millimeter shells to Ukraine to the level needed to replace the amounts of shells that Ukraine has been expanding. So they're out of ammo. They have none, none to send, apparently. So Sullivan also said the same, by the way. Jake Sullivan admitted the same thing. And he said that in light of that, they're having to send these cluster munitions as a bridge until the day finally comes when they've increased production rates of 155 millimeter shells, conventional shells, to the point where they can start sending those kinds of shells again. And that is astonishing. And I'm going to suggest that it's also curtains <laughs> um uh, you know it's it's the moment when the united states for the first time in its modern history has run out of weapons in the middle of a war uh so what uh what happens next i, I mean <laughs> This is this is a this is a war based on the 155 uh, millimeter artillery shells. I mean that that's like the foundation of this conflict, and the U.S. is running low, or is running out. Europe is not doing any better, by the way. What, what happens next? No. Europe is doing far far worse. Just to get a sense of uh, um, the realities, the U.S. is able to produce around 30,000 155 millimeter shells a month. Europe is able to produce around 4,000 <laughs> such shells a month. There's some uncertainty as to how many shells Ukraine launches, but it is probably in the hundreds of thousands a month. So Ukraine, so the West cannot keep up with Ukraine's ex shell expenditure. Now, they, that 30,000 rounds a month figure that the US is now producing is double what they were producing at the start of the war. They pulled out every stop to increase shell production to that level. It's taken them a year to do that. They're apparently still trying to increase shell production beyond that. But it seems significant increases in shell production are years away. So when Sullivan says this is going to be a bridge until finally we are, have enough shells to start you know, conventional shells to make up the difference. Well, that's that looks a little bit like a bridge to nowhere because they're never going to be in that position 
where they can meet Ukraine's shell needs. Now, Russia has far bigger stockpiles of shells at the start of the war than the US did, and their shell production is multiples greater. They are building, making hundreds of thousands of shells a month, and according to US uh, reports, they're making, they're building around three and a half million shells a year, and there's some estimates that that figure is increasing and might even double. So you're absolutely right, this is an artillery war first and foremost, and um, the United States is losing it. Or it, no, let me correct that, the United States has lost it. So what they've been driven to do instead is they can't provide proper conventional shells. They're having to provide old cluster shells left over from the, uh, well, at least 20 years old, some of them. They've got a fairly big stockpile of these, though not an unlimited one. But the point is, these shells, most countries around the world have prohibited their use. They're very, very, very controversial. They're probably not the kind of shells anyway that Ukraine really needs to conduct its offensive or, or even its defensive. These are area munitions that are basically used to, they were basically originally designed to destroy armoured columns and perhaps infantry forces crossing in open places. They're specialised shells, in other words, at least to some extent. They're not really a substitute for everyday artillery. And, of course, the Russians have a much bigger stockpile of these shells than the United States has. And um, probably, from the Russian point of view, using these types of shells is actually in the type of fighting that is taking place at the moment when the Ukrainians are trying to launch an offensive and the Russians are pushing it back, it probably works more to the advantage of the Russians to use these kind of shells than it does to the uh, Ukrainians, because the Russians can use these sorts of shells to destroy Ukrainian infantry and armoured units that are trying to approach their trenches. So it's a disastrous decision. But as I said, the important thing is the United States has run out of the key weapon in a war for the first time that I know of in its history. This has never happened before. And its capacity to produce itself, to build these things, to get itself out of trouble, has gone. Now, given that this is an artillery war, it must mean that this war, as of yesterday, is effectively lost. I I understand that, but uh, what what happens next? I mean, I'm kind of asking the same question. Shouldn't shouldn't Ukraine? Huh. Shouldn't the European Union, Germany, Macron, uh, the Biden White House? Shouldn't they finally get Ukraine to the negotiating table? I mean, you're out of the key weapon. You're out of the key weapon. Yeah. And we, yeah, we can provide this bridge of cluster munitions which I agree with you, looks very, very bad. I mean, this is a really bad look for the United States, which kind of shows their desperation to keep this conflict going because it, it's my belief that they want to they try to get this 
to the elections 2024. So they're they're desperately trying to keep this thing moving. But sh shouldn't they just go go to Putin and tell him we need to negotiate? They can't do it. But the answer th that seems like the only sensible move made to to make. Well, that. Well, that's exactly correct. But of course, we see the problems. Now, can I just say, uh, uh, they've run out of shells. Um, they have to provide these cluster munitions. Cl cluster munitions are devastating area weapons. By some estimates, 97% of the people who've been killed by these things are civilians, because, you know, a lot of these cluster munitions fall over you know, they don't explode when they fall to the ground. They become like mines, in effect. Um, and it, what's fascinating about this, and going to the point of desperation that you said, is that every single one of the US's big European allies, allies who are part of this Ukrainian adventure, have been forced to come out and condemn this move. The Germans have condemned it. The Spanish have condemned it. The Italians have condemned it. The British Even have the condemned it. Yeah. Even the UK has condemned it. So when you say desperate, I mean, that is how desperate it is. And I read articles in the uh, British media about how the US is losing the moral high ground. Not that in our opinion it ever had the moral high ground. But, I mean, you know, that that is what the British media is saying because of this um, decision. And... Uh, it's cut through. I mean, it, it, it's a decision that people who have not been following the war carefully, for the first time, they um, have seen this, and it's cut through. The general public, for the first time, seem to be aware of this, and people are generally angry about it. What should they do? Well, we've discussed this so many times now, in so many programmes, they should talk peace. I mean, we've now had Richard Haas and those ex-officials contact uh, Lavrov in April. We discussed this in a recent programme. We've discussed how these people are in no conceivable sense, uh, you know, soft on Russia. They are essentially neocons in, all, in every respect other than the fact that perhaps they don't have the same sort of visceral hatred of Russia that other neocons do. And they understand that this is a critical situation. And they're trying to uh, talk to the Russians and see whether something can be agreed. The problem is the president is not ready to do that, as that's become absolutely clear. Nor is uh, Sullivan, his national security advisor, at least not for the moment. Nor, of course, is the Blinken-Newland axis that runs the State Department. So, for the moment, they are still sticking <clears throat> by these, this policy of continuing to escalate. They run out of shells. They send cluster munitions. Um, they don't presumably worry too much about the international reaction because what's left now is to try to keep this war going until November next year, when the election is out of the way. Biden or the Democrat or a Democrat close politically to Biden is safely back in the White House. And then, well, by that time, you keep your fingers crossed. 
and hope that something else will turn up. And if it doesn't, well, at least you're still in occupation of the White House. But I agree, that's what it is. It's not a bridge to the day when more conventional weapons will be available and will be supplied. It's a bridge to November 2024. That's what it's intended to do. It's intended to provide Ukraine with some weapons it can still use um, in order to keep fighting until the election is out of the way. And that now is the priority. What worries me is you have, okay, you have this one set of neocons who are more realist, let's say, the, the Richard Haas, who are like, yeah. okay, we tried, we failed, it's over, now let's move on, and I don't know, let's focus on China or move on to, to wars that we can win, let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. This, this did not work. So you have those neocons. No. What worries me are the other two sets of, of neocons, neocons and neolibs, yeah because they're pretty much the same thing now. You have the Sullivan neolib neocon, which is taking the approach of let's just keep this thing going until the elections. And then after the elections, like you said, we'll, we'll figure it out. But then you have the more dangerous, the most dangerous neocons, which are the Newlands and the Blinkens, yes. yeah. who, who do want war, who do believe that they can win a nuclear mm -hmm. war, who believe that NATO could beat Russia, who believe that the Russian military is weak. I mean, I, I would say you lump in there the much of the UK military mm. command, who I believe they really are invested in the narrative that the Russian military yeah. is weak and can be defeated. I worry about these neocons, these extreme neocons, using Sullivan yeah. and, and, say, the Democrat Party and their plan to drag this war for like another year and a half using that strategy to their benefit so they can get the escalation and and the full-on conflict that they want and they believe they they can win i mean what do you what, what do you think to that no i completely agree can i can i just I just say a few things about the three camps because of course the first camp the, the, the let's call them the neocon realists it's a contradiction in terms to talk about any neocon as a realist but as i said they're more they're more grounded in reality and uh, you know they're, they're basically concentrated in the council for foreign relations i think they've won over to their side an important person by the way and that's the cia director william burns now he's made some extraordinary comments about the prigozhin affair and all of that and i think people have rather over focused on those i think those were intended to give him some kind of political space because i he came out with another statement in which he said that Russia is not the key priority, the key priority is China, which is, of course, what the realist neocons are saying. And so he seems to be aligning himself now with that particular group. So there is that group, and they, they do exist. They're in the Council of Foreign Relations. They've um, been behind these articles we've been seeing in Foreign Affairs. They were behind the Rand Corporation report that we saw at the start of this year. They probably have allies. In fact, they definitely have allies on the uh, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon amongst the uniformed military. And their concern is that we're running out of weapons, we're running out of supplies. Ukraine isn't that important. China is much more important. We need to step back, reorganize, refocus 
and prepare for the war that really matters, which is the war with China. That's that group of people. And they are a dangerous group of people in themselves. When we call them realists, it's realists very much in inverted commas. Now, Sullivan is a neocon, but he is also, as you absolutely correctly said in various programs that we've done, his primary focus is elections. Now, he is bound up with Joe Biden. Joe Biden, and this we've also discussed in previous videos, he is completely committed to this hardline policy towards Russia. So Sullivan has to find some way of getting Joe across the line. Joe won't listen to any advice to pull back on Ukraine. So this is Sullivan's latest idea. We don't have conventional shells to sell, send. So let's send cluster munitions instead. And maybe the Europeans won't be happy, but hopefully that will get us through to November 2024. And if it doesn't, well, at least we've tried. I mean, I think that sums up his line of thinking. He's trying to get Biden re-elected. He's now tied to Biden. His career essentially depends on Biden getting re-elected. Biden won't listen to the first group. So Sullivan comes up with this idea of sending the cluster munitions. I'm sure he's not the only person, but I suspect a lot of it comes from him. And you're absolutely right, because the third group and their, their messaging is everywhere. They're saying we need to escalate even further. The big mistake we've made is that we didn't go in hard sooner. We've got to escalate. Um, all this talk from the Russians that if we escalate too far, we might find ourselves in World War Three. The Russians are bluffing. And there have been a whole cascade of articles about this. There's an article that they're planting articles in the, in the European media and their friends there. So De Spiegel had an article saying, you know, let's um, at NATO summit meeting in Vilnius, we've got to put aside any further restraints. Now's the moment where we really need to throw in everything we have. The reason the offensive hasn't worked, the Ukrainian offensive hasn't worked, is because we didn't do enough. We've had an article in the British media by Simon Tisdall in The Guardian saying exactly the same thing. No real danger of nuclear war. We must escalate. We must, es we must send them every conceivable weapon that they want. And we've had some very frightening articles appearing in the West, in the US media as well, including that one from Michael Rubin um, a short time ago, a couple of weeks ago, about two weeks ago, in which he actually suggested supplying Ukraine nuclear weapons. So you can see that group is there. They're not prepared to give up. They are intent on further escalation. They've run out of shells. Shells are the key weapon in the war. Everybody can see that F-16s are not going to change anything. Um, at Atkins missiles, the Pentagon is still unwilling to supply, but they're not going to change anything either. And we see that already these people are thinking in very, very dangerous terms indeed. Um, Simon Tisdall basically is talking about direct NATO intervention in the war. Is there anyone in the in the uh, Alensky administration that is 
looking at, at things differently after this uh, realization with, with the shells? Yes, probably there is, but it, it, it's always very difficult to decipher exactly what's going on. Now, there's, there's two really interesting Ukrainian telegram channels. One is Legitimi and the other is Resident. And they both seem to have sources within uh, Zelensky's office. And there's some theories, for example, by Scott Ritter, that they're actually run by agencies of the Ukrainian government, which could very well be true. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that is true, but I don't know. Anyway, the one, one of them, um, I think it was legitimate, came out and said that Ukraine can only sustain offensive operations for 200 days, um, because beyond that point, it is simply going to run out of weapons. And I've seen a report today, I'm not sure where it came from, but it's clearly Ukrainian sourced which says that General Zeluzhny, remember him? He was almost certainly against the offensive from the start. We were saying um, that, you know, he's basically quit the scene because he is in such complete disagreement with it. He's now come back and apparently he's telling Zelensky, according to this report, look, the longest we can sustain this for at the current burn rate, and he wasn't just talking about shells, by the way, he was talking about armoured vehicles, that Ukraine is losing 11 armoured vehicles, irreplaceable armoured vehicles a day, including perhaps tanks, four tanks a day, some people have estimated, that the longest we can keep this going, with whatever supplies we get from the West, is until the end of the summer. By that point, our forces will be disastrously depleted and the Russians are getting stronger. What we need to do is to call off all the offensives now, including this crazy one that Sierski is launching near Bakhmut, and basically revert to a defensive posture and um, try to weather whatever storm is coming from the Russians. And that's, that's Zeluzhny's advice. Um, no one in Ukraine, as far as we know, within the top leadership of the Ukrainian government, is seriously proposing negotiations with the Russians. For the moment, that option is simply um, not, not one that apparently you can survive pol politically if you speak. If you speak. I can't believe they're going back into Bakhmut. Well, yes, that's exactly what <laughs> I mean, they seem to be doing. I'm speechless. That's I'm exactly not, what they've been doing. Yeah. I know. Well, well, it, it's even worse than that, because from what one can understand, and I think now, I mean, I, I, I thought that might be the case a day or so ago, but now apparently it's been reported. It seems they're actually now um, taking troops from the southern fronts, from the Zaporozhye region, and are redeploying them back to Bakhmut to renew the offensive. There. I mean, you know, it, 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 it seems it seems uh, I mean obsessive to the point of lunacy. But that's it seems what they're doing. And of course, they're losing men and machines there, just as they always have. And by the way, the Russians there are reinforcing as well. We've now heard that around ten thousand Chechen troops, the ones that were assigned the task of dealing with Prigozhin, that they're moving back to the area as well. And anyway, that seems to be what the Ukrainians um, um, are trying to do for the moment. But 
I mean, that that is the only place where they are still holding the initiative, at least to some degree. They haven't managed to gain any real ground. There was a journalist from Corriera della Sera, Italian newspaper. He went there, was absolutely shocked by what he saw, um, said, wrote a piece saying that the Ukrainians haven't advanced by a single metre. He was exaggerating, by the way, but they're suffering very, very heavy losses. And of course, elsewhere in the northern fronts, the Ukrainians are actually losing ground. <laughs> but, you know, keep going, hammer away at Bakhmut, <laughs> keep fighting. The real idea that the predominant group with the ascendant group in Ukraine has, and I think we need to be clear about this, is they are now even more desperate to get NATO directly involved. And all this talk about, you know, getting Ukraine into NATO immediately, that is what that is all about. They're lobbying incredibly hard to try to get NATO in, into Ukraine in some form, which is, of course, comes to, takes us all the way back to what the neocons want. Simon Tisdall's piece, pieces written by others, all about, you know, fast-tracking, um, Ukraine into some form of NATO membership and then getting American, because it would have to be in the end, American troops on the ground in Ukraine. Because to be straightforward about it, Polish, Romanian, Baltic troops really aren't going to make the difference. Uh, it can only be American troops. Now, I think there is no support for that politically in the wider United States but the neocons are desperate enough that they might try to go there. Yeah, and the Russians will annihilate those troops. Oh, well, yeah. indeed, and, in which and, case and it would be and, an even worse. Yeah, and... yeah. Go ahead. No, I mean, I was watching a, a, a very, very disturbing interview by Matthew, I think, Ho of the Eisenhower Press uh, Center, whatever it's called, uh, who's a former US Marine, and he completely endorsed what Scott Ritter has also been saying, that there just aren't the forces available in Europe, US forces available in Europe, to deploy in Ukraine uh, and to take on the Russian army there. There are troops there, but they're not there in a sufficient numbers. If they are deployed, they will face a much bigger Russian army, much more heavily equipped. It would be, well, no doubt they would put up a better account of, for themselves than the Ukrainians would. But bear in mind, the US itself is now suffering from a shell shortage. How do they conduct a war without shells against a Russian army that has them in abundance? Well, we would have aerial campaigns, no doubt, to support those troops that will bring them up against the Russian air defences. And it is very easy to see how in that kind of situation, either you're going to look at a total military debacle, which I think is politically unacceptable for the US, or alternatively, you risk World War Three. You risk going nuclear, because that's the only way that you, you can go. But that's the Ukrainian idea. That's the idea of the people in the neocons in Washington and in London and in Brussels and to some extent also in Berlin and in other places. And um, I mean, they're prepared to take these appalling risks rather than give up on their adventure.
Yeah, and they, they would be facing the real Russian army. I mean, the full force of the Russian yeah. army, because the, the, the big lie of the collective West media and of all the commanders and the generals mm. in the collective West mm. is that, you know, Russia mm. is, uh, is, is, is a second or third rate military. They have 90% of their forces committed in Ukraine. And, um, you know, if we just give one more push, the Russian military is going to collapse. It's the exact opposite. We haven't seen yes. Russia declare war yet. We haven't seen the full force of the Russian military. You know, it goes back to the live stream that we did with uh, Andrei Martianov, where Andrei, you know, he, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he was like, you know, right now they're facing Russia under a special military operation. God help us if they have to actually face the full strength of the Russian military. Make no mistake about it. If U.S. troops, if NATO goes into Ukraine, they're going to face the full Russian military. And, you know, you go back to we go back full circle to what Richard Haas said in that article, which is, you know, I never thought I would agree with the neocon. But, you know, wh why? Why do this? Because if we do this and Russia defeats NATO, which will which they will do, then NATO becomes obsolete. He's he's yeah. he, he has a point, well, you know, why, why why risk NATO for 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 all of this? That is this is absolutely right. But did, I, I would disagree with you. I'll push back on one thing. It's not that we are agreeing with Richard Haas. It's Richard Haas is agreeing with us. We've been making this point now for, you know, years. I mean, finally, somebody, you know, at that level has come around to our way of thinking. And I mean, I'm not saying that with any degree of pleasure, but I mean, you know, but, but it, it is the blindingly obvious it is the blindingly obvious. I mean, you are you are risking all on, on, on a losing enterprise. But I think you're absolutely right in what you said, by the way, that some of them still can't put aside their belief that the Russian military is incompetent, drunken, demoralized, ineffective. There's a long piece by Mark Galliotti, for example, who's not that far from that particular group in The Times. He's talk, trying to rationalise why the offensive hasn't succeeded. He says, well, you know, defence is easier than attack and the Russians are, you know, fairly good at defence, but they're not really good at attack. And, you know, we mustn't overestimate what they've achieved and all of even even as the pictures cascade in of Ukrainian weapons being destroyed every day of the Russians advancing in the north. But anyway, that was Mark Gagliardi. And Simon Tisdall goes on, you know, in his article, he talks about how the Ukraine, the Russians haven't even succeeded in defeating the second, you know, the, the uh, second team that Ukraine has, not the best team, but the second rate team that Ukraine has. So, you know, of course, they couldn't possibly stand up to us because they're weak and fragile and their political system is weak and fragile and everything about Russia is corrupt and doesn't work properly. You'd have thought that a year and a half into this by now, and especially since this offensive, a month and a half, just over a month now since the offensive began, <laughs> they would know better. They would know otherwise. But these beliefs have become such an article of faith for them that they can't give them up. It really has become a religion.
for that. Anyway. Okay, it's, we will end it there. The Durand. Yeah. The Durand.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Durand shop. 10% off. Use the code good day. Take care.